Well, good morning. Uh, when I was in college, I remember one day we were living in an on-campus apartment. So there was four of us in an on-campus apartment. And college means the walls are really thin and you can hear everything because it's all cheap and they, ex- they charge you exorbitant amount of money to live there. And so we were on the second floor. And so there was a people above us and people below us. And so you could hear everything. The people above us, we could hear them all the time, even if they weren't trying to be loud. People below us could hear us all the time. And to make matters worse, the people below us, uh, the RA of the building also lived there. And so there were times when we got in trouble for being too loud, when it's like we're not doing anything different than anybody else, but whatever. Uh, but there was one part time in particular that we were being too loud. And three of the four of our roommates, three of us, for whatever reason, I don't remember, uh, were, had the music up really loud and we're like running around the apartment dancing, being stupid. Uh, to which our fourth roommate in his room doing homework or something said, you guys need to quit, you're being too loud. And I don't know about you, but when somebody tells me to stop doing something, that means do it more. And so we kept doing it. We did this for about four minutes, and then all of a sudden we hear the door below us slam. And we freeze, and we're like, oh, shoot, is the RA coming to get us? Like, are we in trouble? And then about, I don't know, five seconds later, we hear the uh, door to the uh, stairwell open and close, and we're like, always oh, here. And so we do what any self-respecting person would do in that situation. We ran and hit. So the three of us that were actually making all the noise, I ran to the bathroom, locked the door. A lot of the roommate ran into my room, and he locked the door. And the other roommate ran into his room, and he locked the door. And then about two seconds after that, we hear. And so at this point, this is awesome, because those of us that were making the noise were hiding, and the person who was mad about it in the beginning with had to open the door. And he had to be the one where the RA was like, what are you doing, right? And it was awesome to make matters worse. One of our roommates is like 6'5", and so he's super loud. And so we're in there, we're dying laughing, and he gets so mad at us, but it's awesome, so it doesn't matter. Now, why do I share that story? Now, that's, of course, a lighthearted, funny story, if you will. But we're looking at this question this morning. Uh, Where can you find the courage to do the right thing? In your life, maybe it's an ethical dilemma or a moral dilemma, or you just know what the right thing is, but you're not quite sure you want to do it, or maybe you can get away with not doing the right thing. How, in those moments, do you and I find the courage to not run and hide, but to actually confront what we're actually supposed to confront? And that is what we are going to be looking at this morning. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Esther chapter 4. If you don't, there's a black one somewhere around you. You can read along on page 435 there. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take one of them home. It is our gift to you. In about 60 seconds, I'm going to try to give you a recap of where we are. We started the book of Esther at the beginning of January this year. Uh, This book is in the Old Testament. It takes place around 480 BC in the Persian Empire. At this point in human history, Persia is the largest and strongest empire the world has ever seen. In chapter 1, we saw Xerxes, or by his Hebrew name, who he's referred to mostly in this book as Ahasuerus, but it's the same person. Uh, he has a queen. He has this massive six-month banquet because he's going to go on this, uh, uh, this uh, military campaign against Greece at the end of the campaign, or sorry, at the end of the banquet. He, has, he summons Queen Vashti, his queen, to come and present herself naked in front of the, uh, those attending the banquet and the party. She refuses, and so he banishes her and strips her of being queen. Uh, chapter 2, we saw uh, that uh, this is after Persia goes against fights against Greece and actually loses. The king is in low spirits, and one of his advisors uh, recommends that he finds a new queen. He likes that idea. And so we saw the sad tale of how he took women from all over the kingdom into his harem, uh, of which they would be given a year to go through beauty treatments and other things for their one night with the king, of which many of them would then spend the rest of their night, the rest of their life in the king's harem, away from their friends and family forever. Now, Esther, who the book is after, is the one who actually is chosen as 
queen. So she becomes queen. And then last week we saw Esther and her cousin Mordecai, who is the other main character of this book. Uh, he, Mordecai uh, raised her as she was an orphan, so you're his, her legal guardian, uh, if you will. Uh, he, as we've seen, he, they're both Jewish, and Mordecai has not been a faithful Jew. He's assimilated quite well into Persian culture. He's climbed the political ranks. And so he's done a lot of things as a faithful Jew that you would not like. And we see in uh, last week that he actually finds out that there's an assassination attempt against the king. He tells the queen about it, Esther, who then tells the king. And so the assassination attempt is foiled. However, he was not given any public recognition, which is quite rare at that time. Typically, the kings would want to encourage that type of behavior. So he doesn't get anything. And then we see this guy named Haman, and we're not told what he does, but something happens to him, and he gets promoted to the second highest official in the kingdom. To make matters worse, Haman is an Agagite. And as we talked about last week, Jews and Agagites did not get along at all. The Agagites were the first nation to attack the Israelites after they left Egypt. And so they've been at war ever since. And so as a reader of this text, as an original reader, you're upset that Mordecai didn't get anything for what he did, which was right. And you're more upset because this guy named Haman, an Agagite, a sworn enemy, becomes second in command. He then commands everybody to bow to him just like you would to the king. Mordecai finally, we're not told why, decides to be faithful to the God of Israel, will not bow to, Mordecai, or to Haman. Haman finds out about it, finds out that Mordecai is a Jew and decides, because he does not like the Jews, that he is not only going to kill Mordecai, but the entire Jewish population in Persia, which was most of all, if not all of the Jews in the world at that time. He goes before the king and he says, uh, there's a, they, we can get a bunch of money from them and they're really influential and he's exaggerating both of these points uh, and says, let's, let's wipe them out. The king's like, sure, whatever you want to do. And he signs an edict, putting it on the calendar the day that the Jews will be destroyed. And that is where we pick up the story in Esther chapter 4. Today, I'm going to read most of the text up front, and then we'll apply it at the end. And here's how it starts, beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, after this edict has been signed into law that the Jews will be destroyed. It says this, when Mordecai learned all that had occurred, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went into the middle of the city and cried loudly and bitterly. So Mordecai is understandably intensely grieved over what is going to happen. He is going to be killed. All of his family uh, and the Jewish people are, are going to be killed. Now, what's interesting, and in the West, you and I, typically, we like to keep our emotions to ourselves. We don't like to be public about it. We might tell a few trusted family members or friends. We certainly don't want to cry in public. However, in most Oriental cultures today, and back then, especially in Persia, was no different, that oftentimes you'll grieve publicly, that it isn't some private thing you keep in, that you let people know when things are not going well for you. So he tears his clothes, which is a common thing we see throughout the Old Testament when people are grieving, and then he puts on sackcloth and ashes. Now, different than today when we might wear black to represent maybe grief, you might wear it to a funeral, wearing sackcloth and ashes was not a fun thing. Sackcloth was often made from goat hair, which would rub your skin and irritate it. Of course, putting ashes on your hair and your face is not fun. And the point is that it's supposed to be a physical reminder of the internal pain that you are feeling. And so that is what uh, Mordecai is doing. He puts on sackcloth and ashes as a physical reminder of the turmoil and the sadness and the depression that has overcome him because of this edict. Verse 2, he, talking about Mordecai, went only as far as the king's gate, since the law prohibited anybody wearing sackcloth from entering the king's gate. There was a great mourning among the Jewish people in every province where the king's command had become edict. They fasted, wept, and lamented, 
and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. And so just like Mordecai is the news spread around the kingdom, many of the other Jews joined in this kind of this mourning, this public mourning over what is going to happen. Now for us in our context, it is somewhat difficult for us to really get ourselves in the story. I don't think any of us have probably experienced, you know, a genocide on you and your family. However, all of us have experienced difficult things, right? All of us have had times in our life where we've heard some really terrible news, right? So maybe it was the death, the surprising death of a loved one. Uh, Maybe it was a dream that you had been pursuing and you found out was no longer going to be an option for you. Uh, Maybe it was a diagnosis that you received or someone that you cared about, right? We've all had times where things were really hard for us. We were really scared. We did not know what to do. Or maybe to maybe put it more close to home for this context, uh, maybe the last time that our nation has grieved publicly together, like the Jews would have done, was 9-11, right? Now, some of you might be a little bit too young, but most of us can remember where we were when 9-11 happened, right? And we can remember the state of our nation, grieve. It was like the first time in the history of the United States that everybody like liked the president at the same time, right? That's kind of rare, right? But we were confused. We didn't know what to do. And I remember, for me, I was in the seventh grade when it happened. I was homeschooled from third to seventh grade, and it was, uh, I remember that morning happened. My mom was at work, and my two other brothers, I don't know where they were, and I was at home doing my schoolwork, and I got, we got a phone call on our house phone, if you remember what those are, and someone left a voicemail. And it was my mom's friend, and she was just like, hey, Debbie, something about New York City, I can't remember, but the World Trade Centers, you need to turn on the television. And so I watched pretty quickly after the first plane hit everything that happened. I watched the second plane hit the tower live. I watched the, the uh, towers fall. And even, even that, that age, I don't know, 11 or 12 or something like that, kind of confused, not really sure like what this was and all these sorts of things. But remember thinking like, man, what is happening? And what are we going to do? Like, this is awful, right? That is kind of, in some ways what they are experiencing here. They're sad, they're depressed, they do not know what to do because they're all going to be killed. And that's kind of the mood that they're in in the moment. And here's what happens next, verse 4. Esther's female servants and her eunuchs came and reported the news to her, and the queen was overcome with fear. She sent clothes for Mordecai to wear so that he would take off his sackcloth, but he did not accept them. Esther summoned Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, Uh, to attended her and dispatched him to Mordecai to learn what he was doing and why. So she finds out that he's wearing sackcloth and ashes, which clearly means that there's something wrong. Uh, At this point in the story, Queen Esther has been queen for about five years, and so clearly they are still Queen Esther and Mordecai keeping tabs on each other. And so she sends a close to Mordecai. Why? Because if you were wearing sackcloth and ashes, you could not enter the king's gate, the king's palace, the the kind of where all the political stuff was going on. And so she can't go out to him because up to this point, her Jewish identity out of Mordecai's, you know, command or request has been hidden. So nobody knows she's Jewish. The king doesn't know she's Jewish. And so she cannot go out to him so that so, so people don't kind of put the two dots together that she is also Jewish. So she sends clothes to him so he can actually take the sackcloth off and come inside where she can actually have a conversation with him. But he rejects them. He's not going to do it. And so she has to send Hathach, one of the eunuchs, to go and correspond on her behalf to Mordecai to figure out what in the world is going on. And here's what happens next, verse 6. So Hathach went out to Mordecai in the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened, as well as the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay the royal treasury for the slaughter of the Jews. Mordecai also gave uh, him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa, which is the capital, which is where they are, ordering their destruction. 
so that Hathach might show it to Esther, explain it to her, and command her to approach the king, implore his favor, and plead with him personally for her people. And so what's happening here is, again, essentially Mordecai is explaining the situation uh, to Esther through the eunuch and is saying, here's what you have to do, here's what's going on, you need to go talk to the king to go tell him to reverse this edict and to get all things straightened out. Now, as us as modern readers, we might think, okay, that's good, she's the queen, we'll be able to fix the situation, no problem. But that's not exactly how the dynamics of the king-queen relationship and the king and anybody's relationship worked back then. And in fact, here's how she responds, that she, because she cannot just go to the king. In verse 9, Hathach came back to uh, Esther and repeated Mordecai's response to Esther. Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to tell Mordecai, all of the royal officials and the people of the royal provinces know that one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard and has not been summoned, the death penalty, unless the king extends the gold scepter allowing that person to live. I have not been summoned to appear before the king for the last 30 days. What she's saying is, I cannot just go to the king because if I do that, I will be killed. There are only seven high-ranking officials were the only people in the entire kingdom that could go to the king unannounced. So she cannot just go up to the king and talk to him because she could be killed for doing so. Now, you might think, okay, that makes sense. Why doesn't she request a meeting with the king? Why doesn't she kind of set an appointment, if you will? Now, again, what's hard about Esther is that we're not told why the characters uh, do what they do and the decisions that they made. But there is one of two reasons, or maybe a combination of both of these, as to why Esther does not set up a separate meeting uh, with the king. Uh, first of all, it could be that the king's affections for her had cooled. So again, at this point, uh, she had been queen for about five years, uh, and they, this king had access to plenty of women, so maybe he's kind of over Esther, he kind of, he's not as excited with her, she doesn't have the favor in his eyes that she has had, and perhaps the fact that she mentions that she has not been summoned by him in 30 days kind of implies that, or it could be that she didn't want to draw attention from the king and his advisors for requesting a meeting. You see, if she requests to meet with the king, it would not have been done in, or in private, so other people would have been there and been able to see what she was talking to the king about, which again might have shown her Jewish identity and made people question what she was actually doing. So it was not as simple as, well, let me just pull the off to the side and talk to him, she could not do that. And so here is Mordecai's response. It says this in verse 12. Esther's response was reported to Mordecai. Essentially, I can't go to the king because I could die. 13. Or Mordecai told the messenger yeah, to reply to Esther, don't you think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace? If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place but you and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows, perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. In other words, he's saying that's not acceptable. You have to go to the king. Now, here's what's difficult about this passage. Again, we don't know their motivations. We don't know what's going on. This, uh, these few verses uh, have sprung up a lot of debate among commentators and biblical scholars about what is going on. For example, there's a couple of things going on here that we don't know the answer to. Uh, for example, is Mordecai threatening Esther? Is he saying, you better go to the king, because if not, I will tell the, king's, uh, the king of your identity, and you're going to die like the rest of us. And so he, is he saying, no, that's not acceptable. You better do this, 
or else? Is he threatening her? We don't know. Or perhaps he's saying it this way. Perhaps he's saying, and perhaps he's trusting that God will be faithful to the Jewish people like he has always done in the past, right? That we're not sure how he's going to do it, but I know God is going to deliver us, and you're queen. And so this could be your opportunity to play a large part in that happening. So maybe he's not threatening her. Maybe he's just encouraging her to say, hey, you're queen. This could actually go really well. This could be awesome. Like, we could remember you forever, right? So maybe he's encouraging her because God is going to be faithful, and you're queen, so clearly he might be wanting to use you. Or is he saying this? Or is he saying that this was God's plan all along, right? The reason that you are queen was for this moment. That has to be the reason. And so you just need to do what you're supposed to do because you're queen, because this was the plan, right? Maybe God has created you to be queen for this very moment, right? And so we don't know the tone of which Mordecai has. We don't know if he's threatening her, encouraging her. Like, we don't know. But for regardless of, of how this message uh, would have come across to her, here's what we do know, that Esther now has a decision to make. She has a decision to make. She cannot be neutral, right? Because to be neutral is to make a decision, right? She has to do something in order for God to move or to play a part in what God might be doing. And this is how one of the things that we can take away as we read this text, although you and I are not Esther, and although your decisions and my decisions do not have the ramifications of whatever Esther is going to decide to do, we, are, we can be in Esther's place in the sense that all of us have decisions we have to make. Or put another way, you can think of it like this, that being neutral leads to missing out on the opportunity to fulfill your purpose in a given situation. No matter what circumstance you may be in, no matter what may be happening to you, when you and I are neutral, when we do not take a stand, we do not make a decision, we are actually missing out our opportunity to live out what God might want us to do in a particular situation. I think of it like this. Uh, it's a favorite story of mine. When I was, when Christine and I were still living in Wilmington, uh, we went to Chick-fil-A because who doesn't go to Chick-fil-A? And for some reason, I don't know if it was just this particular Chick-fil-A or it was all of them in Wilmington at that time, but every 100th customer would get their meal for free. I don't know if there was a cap on it, but as far as I knew, it wasn't. Like if you happen to be the next 100th customer, whatever you ordered, was free. And so there'd be times where you would go in and you would hear like the 100th customer like right before you or right near you and you're like, oh, I just missed it, right? It was awful, right? And so one night, Christina and I decided to go to Chick-fil-A and we, we go with one of our friends to get milkshakes or something like that. And so we go and Christina and I order first and she says, here's your total. And she's, then the cashier says, do you want to pay for your friend behind you? To which I respond like anybody would, no, I'm good. Like he, he paid for himself. I'm not going to pay for him. It's fine. And so then she responds, are you sure? And I'm thinking, okay, that's funny. But no, he's fine. Like, I'll get mine. He'll get his. It's not a big deal. And then she replies again, are you sure you don't want to pay for your friend? At this point, I don't say this, but I'm thinking, lady, this ain't Burger King. This ain't McDonald's. This ain't Wendy's, right? Your wish is my command, right? You serve at my pleasure, and you're making me feel uncomfortable, right? <laughs> Dan Kathy would not be pleased. Like, what is going on here? I told you no. Stop asking me. Didn't say that. I said, no, like, I'm good. Like, I don't like he's gonna pay for himself like this is gonna work so don't stop asking me to which she says okay well you're the next 100th customer your order is free to which I respond okay like I see what you did there Dan Kathy would happy actually be pleased like you're trying to hook me up I get it right so I'm like oh this is funny meanwhile my friend is standing behind me staring at me like this <laughs> right come on I didn't I didn't pay for his food right his would have been free now why do I share that story because oftentimes in our life what appears to us as obligations are actually invitations from God to play a part in what he wants us to do. 
Oftentimes in our lives, we look at obligations, we look at things that maybe being generous, maybe spending time with that coworker or friend or that person in the mom group whose kids you do not like, right? Loving them, caring for them, doing nice things for them, supporting them, uh, facing maybe having conversations of forgiving people that you don't want to forgive, anything like that. Oftentimes we see these things as obligations, right? Especially if you're a follower of Jesus. Well, I need to do the right thing. I need to love people because God loves me and like I got it. And we view these things as obligations, which oftentimes makes us not want to do it or do it begrudgingly. When it could be that the very thing that we don't want to do is God inviting us to love and impact and encourage other people. And so the question for us, particularly if you're a follower of Christ this morning, is where are you and I missing out on God's calling because we see things as obligations, as things we do not want to do, when it's that God is inviting us to be faithful so that he can do what only he can do. Again, the point is that being neutral leads to missing out on the opportunity, your opportunity, my opportunity, to fulfill the purpose that God has for us in a situation, in any given situation, because we see it as an obligation, something we don't want to do, instead of an invitation to do something we may not want to do, but that God has us there for a reason to do. Again, not to the scale of Esther, but to the scale that God might find appropriate for our life and for our situation. And so here is what Esther responds. Here's how she responds to Mordecai, verse 15. It says, Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa, again, that's the capital city that they're currently in, and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. And so what we see here is that finally Esther, just like Mordecai in the chapter before, has to choose where her identity is going to lie. Is it going to lie in God and faithfulness to him or to maybe what she might want to do or what might be easier for her or maybe to her Persian identity? You see, she, like Mordecai, although Mordecai is kind of more because he chose it, a lot of these things for Esther were outside of her control, uh, in many ways have assimilated into culture. And now Esther has the decision that she is going to display even more courage than Vashti in chapter one, if you were here for that, or Mordecai last week, because not only is her life at risk, but the life of the entire people. And so what does she decide to do? Because she is identifying with the faithfulness of God, calling people to fast that God might provide in ways that only he can provide, she says, I'm going to do the courageous and the hard and the right thing because I'm remembering who I am and whose identity I have. Now, what's significant about this is that she does not have to do this. Although she is a Jew, and even if it is found out that she is a Jew, the fact that she is a queen means nobody is going to touch her. Right? When the day comes for the slaughter of the Jews, there ain't nobody rolling up into the palace to touch the queen. Right? Nobody would do that because they could be killed for even approaching her, even getting close to her. Right? So the reality of the situation is she is probably good. And yet what does she decide to do? She decides to lay down her life for the good of other people. Now, this is a courageous thing. We should be encouraged by it. But you and I may read this story, and although we are encouraged and we think that's awesome and we're like, way to go, Esther, you and I can be tempted to think, but I'll never be in that type of position, right? Although she does the right thing, like, I will never have a time in my life where people's thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of lives, an entire nation uh, can be changed by what I decide. And so while maybe I should do kind of right and faithful things, does it really matter? Like, what does this have to do with me? 
And I love how Mervyn Brenneman puts it in his commentary on Esther, particularly on this chapter and how you and I as modern people, especially if you're followers of Christ, how we're supposed to take this. And here's how he puts it. He says, many Christians are more concerned about their own security than about the desperate physical and spiritual needs of the world. If they understood that their decisions could make a difference, many would make the commitment God is asking of them. You see, what's happening here, I think many times the reason you and I may not make a decision or may not do things that we know we should do is because of this. We don't actually trust God. In other words, you could put it this way, that a lack of action equals a lack of trust. And what we mean by this is that it's not maybe that we don't actually, it's not that we don't trust that, that God has things for us to do and that, that we're supposed to be faithful to him, but we don't actually trust that what we do actually matters, right? We actually think in our head, well, I'm insignificant, like what does it actually matter? What, what we're saying there is that we don't actually trust that God has us where he has us for a reason. He has the people around us that he has for a reason and that he wants us to use us in very specific ways. And because we don't actually trust that, oftentimes, if we're not careful, you and I cannot do things that are quite clear that God wants us to do because we don't actually think it matters, right? We don't actually trust that it matters. I like to think of it this way. If you've been a part of New City for any length of time, you know that I am a huge Duke basketball fan, right? You know that I love Duke. Now, here's the thing about Duke. Uh, their stadium, Cameron Indoor, is small, and the tickets are very expensive. And so I have only ever been to a handful of games in my life. I've only ever been to a handful of games in my life. Now, because you know I'm a Duke, big Duke fan, I have a friend who back in November got me two tickets to a Duke, to a Duke game. Because uh, this person had another friend, I guess they had season tickets, and they said, if you ever go to town, I know someone that would really love to go to the Duke game, let me know, and I'll buy your tickets, and I'll give them to this person. And so I get a call or text at like 4.30 on a Friday afternoon asking if I want two tickets to a Duke game that night. And I'm like, what? What kind of question is this? Yes, I want two tickets. Now, what happened there? My friend, because they know that I love Duke, knew that if they got these tickets, it would mean a lot to me. They knew that it would make a big impact on my life. You see, I think sometimes we feel like God can't use us because we have not taken the time to get to know the people around us, the stories of our coworkers or our friends or our classmates, right? Their pain points, what they struggle with, what they're encouraged by, even a small thing of what their coffee order might be, right? When we get to know these things, then we can make decisions that we know will positively impact them or encourage them, right? If you think you can't make of a difference, if you feel like you can't, God can't use you, my encouragement would be get to know the people around you, and as you get to know them, you will be able to do small things to love and encourage them. Now, to that point, we often sometimes might think of this. We might say, well, that's great, but I'm still not Esther, and I can't change the entire world. And here's what we need to know when we start to think that way, that we can't change the world for everyone. Yes, that's true, but we can change the world for someone. We can't change the world for everyone. We can change the world for someone. Here's the thing. God has never asked you once to be Jesus. God has never asked you once or me once to change the world. There is not a single person, and I know it kind of goes against what we kind of tell people in our culture today. There is not a single person alive that can change the world. None of us can do that. But we can change and impact and influence the world of the people around us. It is true that you and I are not Esther, but it is also true that God has never once asked you to be Esther. He's inviting you to come and to follow and to know him where he has you. Uh, a way that some other people have put it is you could think of it like this, that you and I should do for one what we wish we could do for everyone. 
right? You can't know everybody's coffee order, right? You can't know everybody's struggles. You can't know everybody's weaknesses. You can't encourage everybody in the world, but you can encourage the people that God has placed in your life. So let me maybe make this practical. Uh, One of the ways that we can impact people close to us is through grief, right? And sometimes we're like, well, I don't know how to help somebody, or I feel weird, or I don't know what to do when somebody's grieving. And again, if you know my story, you know, when I was 19 years old, uh, I lost my dad to a suicide. And so through conversations that people sometimes are like, well, we're, we were afraid to text you or afraid to call you because we didn't want you to, if you're having a good day, we didn't want to say that you were praying for you or whatever. Like, and I just want to tell you this, right? There's never been a time in my life where somebody has reached out to me randomly said, hey, I'm praying for you today. I know that might be hard for you because of X, Y, and Z, where I've ever thought, you know what? You're right. I completely forgot my dad wasn't here. That's never happened, right? Or even on the anniversary of his death every year. Sometimes I'll have friends or people reach out to me and they'll say, hey, I know this day is hard. I'm, gonna, I'm praying for you. You know what that means to me? You know how impactful that is? And this is why getting to know people's stories matter. So you can write a handwritten note. So you can let them know on the anniversary of the passing of a spouse or a child, for example, that you're there for them, that you care for them. We cannot change the world for everyone, and God has never asked anybody to do that. But we can change the world for someone. You and I are not Esther, but we can be like Esther to the people God has placed in our lives. And that's what we see here. Again, here's how this chapter ends uh, that we're reading this morning. It says this again, Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went and did everything Esther had commanded him. Now, here's what's significant here. Uh, Esther calls for a fast for night and day for three days. So 72 hours, no food. It's significant because a Jewish fast typically meant that you would fast from sunup to sundown. So during the day, you wouldn't eat anything. But at night and sometimes in the morning, if you wanted to wake up early enough, you would eat. She said, this time, we're not going to eat anything. We're going to go 72 hours, and we are going to fast and pray that God might deliver me and deliver our people. And here's why fasting is important. I know in our culture, we kind of like don't love the idea, but fasting reminds us of our needs for God and shows us that we can't do things God can do, that we need God to move on our behalf. It's why the 21 days of prayer and fasting for us is so significant. You can go to newcityrdu.com slash 21 if you want to see different ways you can fast or the things that we're praying for. But we're basically praying for four main things. Our church, that God would move on behalf of our church, that he would move on behalf of our city, that he would move on behalf of the relationships that we have with people who do not know Jesus, and then he would move on our own behalf, that he would grow us closer to him, because none of these things can ever happen if God does not move. Fasting is a reminder of this. It's reminding ourselves of who God has called us to be. He has not called us to do everything in our own power and in our own might, but he has called us to be followers of him. In other words, here's the main point from this text this morning, especially when we look at this question, where can I find the courage to do the right thing? Here's what we would say, that in order for you to do for me to do what God has called us to do, you must be who God has called you to be. In order for you to do what God has called you to do, you must first be who God has called you to be. And all of us get this backwards all the time. We often think, I need to do X, Y, and Z, or I need to refrain from these certain things. And if I do that well, then God will love me, and then God will be happy, for, happy with me, and that he'll do nice things for me. 
And that what we see is that is the exact opposite of who God is. What is the gospel, right? The gospel is what Christ came to do for us, that Christ did not come to give us grace and forgiveness uh, and a relationship with God himself when we got our act together, when we did a bunch of good things. But while we were still powerless, while we were in our sins, God said, I'm going to send a Messiah, the Redeemer, to save the world for anybody who would come to their senses, trust and follow me, and receive the grace and mercy that I have. The gospel is not about what you do. It's about what God has done and us following him in that. The gospel is about us responding to the grace and mercy of God. And as we read this story, we see that Mordecai last week, Esther this week, has a choice to make. She has to decide, who am I going to identify with? And when we get that decision right, it impacts how we live. I love, I'll read one more quote real quick from Karen Jobes and her commentary of Esther and on this chapter. Here's what she says, again, talking about this idea how about how we're not Esther? So how, what does this mean for us, especially when it comes to our identity? She says it this way. She says, It is unlikely that any of us will ever be in Esther's dire predicament, but every one of us faces defining moments in our own lives. Certainly, the most fundamental of them comes when we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and decide how to respond to it. The gospel confronts us with the decision to either to continue to live as pagans or to identify ourselves with God's people, the church. Our choice defines who we are and with what people we identify. Again, in order to do what God has called you to do, you must be who God has called you to be. And as I close, I'm not going to ask anyone to stand up or to raise their hand, but I just want to say this. If you do not yet know Jesus, you have a decision to make. You have a decision to make. Am I going to fool myself into thinking that I've got it all figured out, that I don't need any help, that I'm good, that I can tell God, that I can convince him that I'm good enough, that I don't need him or his help? I'm going to do that. Or, or are we simply just going to be honest about our condition, that we are broken people, that we do not get it right all the time, that we need God's grace and forgiveness and mercy? Do we want to be honest about our sin and simply accept him for who he is? We have a decision to make, and the reality of the situation is the decision is easy. The decision is easy. It's hard, of course, to to deny ourselves and our selfishness and our pride, but to accept the fact that God loves you so much that he came to make a way for you to come to know him, regardless of who you are, what you have done, or what has been done to you. The good news of the gospel is that because of Jesus, you and I have nothing to prove and no one to impress. The good news of the gospel is that he is inviting us to be children of the king. And when we follow him, we do not get it right all the time. We still fall short, but he influences our hearts, he changes our motivations, and he gives us the courage to do what is right, not for the sake of being right and doing the right thing, but for the sake of loving him and loving others. Again, in order to do what God has called you to do in your life, you must first be who God has called you to be. He changes our hearts, he changes our lives, and he changes our motivation, and the invitation is simply to come and accept who he is. The gospel is about what Christ has done for us, and how by responding to him, we can see and experience who he is. Again, remember, in order to do what God has called you to do, you must be who God has called you to be. And you're going to want to come back next week so we can see what happens to Esther. Let's pray.